living. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. I believe last season I mentioned how I was strongly considering deleting my Facebook page because it's just so much foolishness on that app. A lot of our social media is rotten. And if you watched The Social Dilemma, the Netflix documentary, that really makes you want to quit all social media. But even in the cesspool, somehow Facebook manages to be the worst of the worst, which is why I was really on the brink of quitting. But going to keep it real, when you have a memoir to sell, as I do, pre-order it now wherever books are sold, you just can't afford to quit social media platforms. It, it just kind of is what it is. But the conversations on Facebook are so wild because of the huge generational difference between Facebook and other apps, which have much younger users. So let me tell you about the latest Facebook foolishness that is happening right now which deals with the movie starring Regina Hall and Sterling K. Brown, who recently was a guest here on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And therefore, the word of the week is blasphemy. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Boy, let me tell y'all, the Meemaws, aunties, big mamas, the mothers of the church, missionary and usher boards, The deacons and deaconesses, them folks hot as fish grease on Facebook about Regina and Sterling's movie Honk for Jesus, which is streaming now on Peacock. Apparently, the congregation of aunties did not know that Honk for Jesus is a satire and not a Medea play or a goofy ass comedy like Kingdom Come. This is key in the misunderstanding and the criticism. But a lot of folks didn't like it anyway because It just hit a little too close to home because without giving too much away, Honk for Jesus is pretty much the Eddie Long story combined with a biting look at capitalistic church culture. The movie is a mockumentary that follows the purported comeback of Lee Curtis Child, played by Sterling Brown and his wife, Trinity, who is played by Regina Hall. The Childs' church membership completely tanks after Lee Curtis is caught in a sexual misconduct scandal That involves young men and considering infidelity in the pulpit isn't exactly a shocking headline or a deal breaker in a lot of congregations. It's clear that those involved in this film also wanted there to be some attention paid to some conversation about homophobia and the church, because, for example, would this Christian power couple have lost all their followers if Pastor Childs had a harem of women instead of young men? The film also examines specifically why so-called pastors talking to their congregation like this has become normalized. See, that's how I know you're still poor, broke, busted, and disgusted because of how you've been honoring me. I'm not worth your McDonald's money. I'm not worth your Red Lobster money. I ain't worth your St. John knit. Y'all can't afford it no how. I ain't worth y'all Louis Vuitton. I ain't worth your Prada. I'm not worth your Gucci. 
The sliding wigs and church shoes with short sets on Facebook was not about to let honk for Jesus play with God like that. From one Facebook poster, honk for Jesus, save your soul was a waste of my time and money. Disgraceful and distasteful, although it brought out some pastoral down low, filthy mouth greed issues. I would definitely not call this a movie. In all honesty, they should have paid me to go see this one. I've been a member of a few churches to being a PK child, preacher's kid. And relocating a few times. None of the churches I've been a member of or associated with mirrored this. I'm just saying hashtag mockery of God. Okay. Another Facebook poster who claims to be a bishop. Honk for Jesus. If you think Honk for Jesus is a Christian movie, you are sadly mistaken. It was a lot of cussing. They were constantly using the N-word and dropping a lot of F-bombs. This movie was a total disgrace and a mockery of the church. Save your money. Oh, saints, my dear, sweet peppermint chewing saints, my dear, sweet white stocking wearing saints. The church is an institution and institutions are never above criticism and being held accountable. If we didn't want these institutions to mean something, to serve the people, then we wouldn't care about their place and position in our communities. It's because we do care and understand the special history of the black church that we just can't allow bad fruit to go unnoticed. If you have a terrific church home, then this is a conversation that you don't have to be a part of. But there's a critical lens that must be looked at, especially the profound impact of prosperity gospel and the church's relationship with addressing homosexuality. It's tricky. It's complicated. But I think they pull it off and honk for Jesus. Regina Hall is spectacular. They both are wonderful. Nothing about this film is blasphemy. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is an incredible, and I do mean an incredible filmmaker. She directed and wrote the iconic movie Love and Basketball. She's also directed Disappearing Acts and Netflix's smash sensation, The Old Guard. But what makes her special isn't just the way she shoots movies, but her sensibilities, her instincts, the way she tells a story. She makes movies for people who want to feel some kind of way afterward. And I mean that in the good and best sense. Her film, The Woman King, which stars Viola Davis, premieres on September 16th. And I cannot express to you how much I've been looking forward to seeing this. In my dream scenario, The Woman King and Black Panther 2 both garner Best Picture and Best Director nominations. But I digress. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Gina Prince by the wood. So, Gina, it's great, obviously, to, to talk to you, and, and I can't wait to talk to you a little bit more about Woman King and all the other stuff you have going on. But you should know that you are mentioned um, in my memoir that is coming out what? on October 25th. Yes, you are. I always find a way to plug it. So I, it's perfect to have you on. <laughs> so I tell the story, and this is a true story, and I don't know how much you were aware of it, but... When you and Sanaa did Sports Center, when Mike and I were the hosts, yeah, this is when Shots Fired was out. You wore a T-shirt that said "feminist" on it, right? Yes, yes. 
<laughs> and that caused quite a bit of controversy, believe it or not, that you wore that shirt because this is ESPN. This is a sports network. And we got roasted by a few blogs and sports media critics who always were coming after our show. We had a lot of right wing critics that came after our show. Because, of course, when you have two black people hosting a show, that is an invitation to all the racists to come join the party. Yep. And they accuse, I think it was because of your shirt, they, they started calling us woke center. And like, how could they have this woman on there to talk about police violence and she wearing this feminist T-shirt? So, you know, I tell that story as being one of the reasons why I was like, I really don't want to do sports center anymore. And uh, so... We are intrexably linked here. <laughs> because, I mean, what I'm hearing about the story is I tanked your show. <laughs> yes, you changed my life, Gina. One T-shirt, you changed my life. Who knew? No, I remember, well, foremost, like my best memory of it is being on your show. Like that was, I wanted to be on SportsCenter. I loved your show. I'm an athlete. I wanted to talk about it on, on there. And I remember after, and I didn't even think, it wasn't intentional. It's just a shirt I like. I believe in it, obviously. But I remember starting to get stuff on social. It just, and then obviously you got it stronger than me, but it, I shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah, it was a, it was a weird time because this is, um, well, I shouldn't say weird because that means that it somehow died down or went away. But I mean, this would have been, I believe, 2017. And so obviously we were, uh, in the height of a very uh, hostile president <laughs> and because of the tone, um, you know, ESPN was caught in the crosshairs of people thinking they're being too political, too left leaning, too liberal, which I trace to the fact that suddenly you were seeing more black and brown faces. You were seeing more women who were in, you know, strong positions as, as we were. And that led to this unfair, awful label that we were, exceedingly liberal and we didn't talk about sports that we just talked about social justice issues i was like no we were a sports network and a sports show and of course if we have a guest on we're going to ask them about their latest project which in your case happened to be addressing a police shooting but probably the people who had those criticisms probably didn't actually watch your show and understand that the gist of it was actually kind of flipped <laughs> It was a black police officer shooting somebody. So, and that's not to say those structural inequities can't exist or the tone of policing, but it was quite interesting that, you know, between that and the conversation we had about why you decided to do shots fired, it was like, wow, we just walked up into a unnecessary controversy because of the way people are. Yeah. I think though, I mean, for me, sports and politics and sports and, Humanity and sports and our humanity are always going to be linked and intertwined. And um, it, it shocks me how people want to keep it separate. I mean, you look through history and how sports has been such a benefit in, in terms of elevating our stories and our humanity. Um, but people don't like to go from seeing us on screen doing something positive or heroic and then translate that into real life. They want to keep us just in sports and um it's always been a frustration for mine um but what i love what my husband reg loves in terms of our work is to use sports to tell the story of america i am in complete uh agreement there but um you know generally my attitude with those people who had a problem with it was like fuck those people <laughs> um so that was just my attitude but before we get started and because i want to talk to you i have so many filmmaking questions i want to ask you 
and definitely a lot to ask you about the woman king which I tried to sweet talk my way into a screener being sent to me, but that didn't work. So not doing screeners, but I, I have it on good authority. I might get to see the movie a little bit earlier. So, um, you know, uh, we're taping this. Um, of course, the, the movie hasn't come out yet. But before we dive deep into that, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? I'm going to steal something from Viola, which is, that she's recently come into the fuck it phase of her life. And having been in a sustained fight for over 25 years in this industry, I think it was the summer of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Brianna that I feel like I've always put uh, us in my work and pushed us to the forefront at that point, and it's always just been a natural thing. After that, it became an absolute, I'm never going to move away from this. The fight is too important. And that noise that comes when you do that, and certainly we're starting to get a strange trickle with the woman king from some folks. I don't care. It's, uh, you know, I'm in the fight. I will always stay in the fight. And uh, I am absolutely in the fucking phase. <laughs> the unbothered. Yes. Things in my life. You know, I think you've always done that kind of filmmaking, given the kind of stories that you've told, stories that Hollywood traditionally overlooks, underestimates, doesn't care about as it relates to, to Black folks in particular. But with The Woman King, I mean, I watched the social media trailer that was put out that showed from a fitness standpoint, from a physical standpoint, what these women did. Uh, Viola, the rest of the cast to prepare for this role. I'm super jealous. They all got abs and arms. And I'm like, I hate y'all. I'm reporting you as spam because these are offensive to me. Um, but they looked uh, in great shape. But let's just backtrack and tell the, the origin story. How did you become attached to this project? It's interesting about, I, I first heard about it about five years ago. There was an announcement that they were thinking of making this film. I didn't know too much about it, but I just heard Black Female Warriors. And I said to myself, why aren't they coming to me? But, and then and then they did, but they came to me about the script. And at that point, I think I was on Silver and Black at the time. And so I didn't have the bandwidth to do it. But I said, come back to me when you guys have a script. And then a couple years later, they came back with a tremendous script. And i just come off the old guard two years of my life, I literally said, I am taking a break. I promised my family I was taking a break. And then I read it and I was like, shit. <laughs> like, I, this is a have to, this is not, I want to do this film. This is I, I have to. And I sent the script to Reg and asked him to read it. And he read it immediately. And then I still have the text. He texted, this is your next movie. And that was everything because what I do, it's a sacrifice for my family as well. And um, I needed their support for it. And Viola Davis was attached. <laughs> and that is. Oh, so she was already attached when it got to you. Yeah, Viola. Everybody wants to work with Viola. It is. It's interesting because Serena is so much in our conscious. She's always in my consciousness, but the world right now. Um, and I talk about her a lot because of her greatness and how rare it is 
to see true greatness. Viola is that, and it gives you the opportunity to touch greatness um, that is intoxicating. So beyond the fact that you, the story, so far as I've heard it, it is about a Black female warrior tribe essentially trying to defend themselves from enslavement. What were the other elements that drew you to this story that you needed to make this film? I saw myself in these women. I knew what this film could mean. These images up on the screen could mean starting with us. Um, so many of us learn in this country that our history begins with enslavement. We don't get to know what happened before the kingdoms, the kings, the queens, the woman kings, uh, the warriors, the fight. We, we are taught victimization and here are female warriors who were heroes that I never heard of before, that 99% of us have never heard of before because so much of our history is just ignored, erased. Um, so I just, I felt that. I felt what it could mean for us to see ourselves reflected like that. I think about how white boys get to grow up from birth to, to death, seeing themselves heroically in everything and what that does for them. Um, and I want that for us. And it's going to take decades to right the wrongs of the images that we've seen of ourselves throughout history, what this done to us. But like Panther, what that did, my boys, I have two boys. When they walked out of Black Panther, they were like chest out. Um, it was beautiful. Um, I want to keep that going. And so, yeah, reading it, I've, I've read it as an audience and what it, what it did to me. And I felt like I was the right person to do it. It was a big, epic story with action and incredible depth and this personal story within there that was guttural to me. It just felt like all my work up until this point led me to do this film and do it the right way. And, and that, was, that was the have to. You mentioned the greatness of Viola Davis, and I've said this to numerous people. Fences is such an extraordinary movie. And, you know, Denzel Washington, certainly on the Mount Rushmore of, of great actors. But in that movie, it's I don't want to use the word outacted. That's a bad word with Denzel. But Viola Davis is so just everything in that movie that it is. I don't think I've ever seen it's rare that Denzel is on the screen with a real equal, if not a superior. You know what I mean? And so she just brings that to everything she plays. And I listened to her memoir, and it's, it's easily the best audiobook I've ever listened to. It is definitely in my top five of best memoirs. Her story is incredible. So working with Viola, what were some of the biggest takeaways you had from working with her? She's very funny. People, people don't understand how funny she is. I didn't know going in. But just knowing what she's been through in her life, you have an incredible level of respect and empathy and just you're blown away being in her presence because of what she's overcome. Um, I know she absolutely draws on everything that's been been that she's been through in her life, um, which certainly I think adds to her greatness. 
But despite everything she's been through, her heart is enormous. She cares about people so deeply. And you feel that. You feel that when you meet her. I was hella, 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 hella intimidated to meet her in that first meeting. And I don't get scared like that. But I was scared. <laughs> and, um, but she, she's so warm. And I know for the actors as well, the actors came aboard, of course, to tell the story, to embody these characters that they've never had an opportunity. But it was also to work with Viola. And every single person got to be brought under her wing and nurtured and supported and respected. You feel that every moment with Viola. And it's someone in her position, a movie star. She makes you want to bring your A game every moment. And I always believe I do that. But then you work with Viola and say, like, oh, no, I need to work even harder. You want that. And uh, that's that's what she brings. The training, as I said a moment ago, for this looks very intense for the, 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 the warriors, the women warriors in this. What was the training regimen for them? What kind of work did they put in to physically sell being warriors? So when I cast, and certainly for this, it's first, do you have the chops? Then do I believe you as a warrior? Which not everybody has. You can have chops, but I'm not going to believe you. And then thirdly, do you have the work ethic to embody these characters? Because I told all of them, the best action is character-driven, story-driven. It has to be you doing it. I need a performance within that. So you are going to be doing your own fighting and your own stunts, even if you've never done it before. And all of them, absolutely. So foremost, they all had the desire to do it. But I literally said to them, you are going to go online and you're going to look at these cool videos that other actors have done and it's cut to music and it looks fun and sexy and cool. It's not. It is really, really, really hard. There are going to be tears and plateaus and you'll want to quit. Um, but I will be there with you. I will be there pushing you and I need to, you guys to push yourselves. So it was two days where you had weight training for an hour and a half. Then you had a little break. Most of them took naps. Uh, then you had three hours of martial arts training fight and stunt choreography. Uh, some of them had running training because two things, two things are tells certainly in action and for women, how you run and how you throw a punch. And so <laughs> I was like, you guys are going to look good doing that because that'll take you out of a movie in a second. And they all did this on top of having to have really strict nutrition. They they had to eat a lot more, but also their all their food had to change. It had to be completely clean, which for some of them meant tasteless. Hot sauce was a really big thing for, for all of them. Um, and that was my little gifts to, to, to everybody. But it was, and this was months. This wasn't just the couple months leading up to shooting. Then you had to continue it throughout the entire shoot. Um, so Tuso started in May. And went all the way to the following March. And this is almost every day of training. Viola started in July. And then Lashana Sheila started in August because they had been shooting. 
And it was incredible to see what they brought, um, to see what it does. Because for me, it's absolutely part of the rehearsal process and building character. When you're building your body, you're building your mind, you're building your swagger, you're building your confidence. When you know you can kick someone's ass, like it changes the way that you walk or move into a room. Some of them, like Lashana, already had that, you know, because um, she 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 was the only one that had that type of thing because of 007. But it was an incredible bonding experience for all of them. And I know that all of them are so proud of themselves. Adrian Warren, who actually was an athlete, she used to play ball. So uh, we do talk about that. But what they did was extraordinary. And um, and it shows up in the film. You know, as the, the way you judge, you know, people throwing punches and running is how I judge sports movies. Because <laughs> I'll see some awkward throwing motions or the way people shoot. And I'm like, oh, you tried. <laughs> you tried. God bless you. Because um, some of it, I, I still, I've told this story before on this podcast, but I'll, it bears repeating again. I gave Malcolm Lee a lot of shit for the scenes in Best Man Holiday. And I was like, Malcolm, you literally had a star running back answering a cell phone on the sideline. Like, dude, when you talk about list of shit that never happens, like never ever, <laughs> that would immediately get somebody choked out on the field. It's that. <laughs> he was like, but the drama. And I was like, but in sports, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, to sell the movie. I understand. I was like, you know, more so the part of a running back. Well, he's, he's played it a couple of times in his career. So I guess it worked out. But, you know, getting back to what you said about the believability part. Now, that leads to a question that, well, all right. So now I was a guest on Jamel Hills on by the last season. And she told her side of the story about what the love and basketball experience was like for her before you officially gave her the part as Monica. Take a listen. Because it was her first film and, you know, you want to get it right. It's your first film. She spent years on the script. She had all these people in her ear saying, you have to get a basketball player. It's possible. You can do it. And then, you know, it, it kind of was a little torturous for me because it was one of those experiences where they just kind of helped, just kept you like hanging on the side and they would just keep bringing me in. So now, Gina, it's your turn to tell your side and your perspective of things. Yeah. So when I went into Love and Basketball, I even in the writing stage, I said, I will never cast someone who can't play ball. I would never do that to, to female athletes. I, so I was just looking at athletes and then Sana auditioned. And it was ridiculous. It was a great audition. But she had never, not even didn't, I played a little bit, never touched a ball in her life. And so she just started training with her brother and a friend. And then smartly, she came to me and said, if you're going to have trouble making this, this decision, and I am truly in the running, then get me a basketball coach. So I got the assistant coach of the Sparks, Colleen Matsuhara, who started training her. But at the same time, I also had another young woman named Nisha Butler, who was uh, Miss Basketball in New York, went to Georgia Tech. So they were on parallel tracks and I put Nisha with an acting coach and it was really tough because they were both really good at two separate things. But Nisha, I mean, Nisha was good in terms of the acting. Sana is Yale drama school. Sana is next level still is. So obviously she had, she had that. 
So I, I did go back and forth. I watched their tapes, their readings with Omar a thousand times, trying to make the decision and being afraid to pull the trigger on Sana only because of the basketball, because everything else she brought was Monica. She had it. She had the body. She had the swagger. She had the height. But, you know, she couldn't ball. But she was working really hard, really, really hard. And then it, it really came down to her dad. <laughs> dad called me and said, what you're doing is abusive. Because this was dragging out for months. <laughs> and I knew her dad. And that, that hurt because I, I love her dad. But, you know, you get lost in your head. It's my first film. I can't fuck it up. It's got to be right. And so it, it was a, a bit of a selfish thing. So at that point, I knew I had to make a decision. And I literally, <laughs> I brought my tapes to a friend of mine. She had her bridal shower. This is how pathetic it was. And I literally, in the middle of her bridal shower, <laughs> was like, I need you to watch them. <laughs> and pulled her into a room and had her, it was Mara Brockakil, and uh, had her watch it with a couple more bridesmaids in there and uh just trying to help and finally it was reg me and reg deciding what are we going to do and ultimately you've got to go with the actor can't take that close up and sana had it so i made the decision for sana and we joke about it now but it was i called her thinking she's going to be jumping up and down you got the part i want you to come by so we can talk about it and she's like nah i'm busy <laughs> she was pissed she was like you know you should have made this decision months ago. I'm not going to jump all of a sudden. So it's like we started on a bit like this, but we worked our way through it and great friends now. And she will never touch a ball ever again. She she told me that. I, I was like, would you ever do uh, another sports movie? She's like, never. And I was like, dang. It was like, really? like Gina Scarter. <laughs> right? I did. She is super proud of herself, proud of the work. But yes, I, <laughs> yeah, I learned. I did learn from that experience. Yeah. Well, it also probably doesn't help that you yourself play basketball. So like you really know what it looks like and you know what it feels like and you know what's authentic. So she was kind of, you, you know, up against something <laughs> that is, you know, typically not the case when somebody's shooting a sports movie. Not, not at all. And the things I used to actually, though, props to her, too. I used to I was still playing ball at the time. So in different women's leagues. And so I had to come by, just sit on the sideline and watch how we interact, how we walk, how we sit, because it's so specific. I mean, there was we were shooting a scene with her and she's sitting on the bench and I literally went up to her and I put her feet into, you know, this position because, you know, we're kind of pigeon toe. You know, like I was that damn specific. But it was important. You know, they say your talent is in the details and this was a world that I absolutely knew intimately and I wanted to get it right. Well, it, it certainly came through and, and is often regarded as it should be as uh, one of the it's definitely a love story but it, it feels like so much more i feel like i'm i'm almost pigeonholing it by calling it that but a great film that obviously everybody loved um all right gene i have a lot more that i want to talk to you about but uh we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back on the other side with more with gina prince by the way debated whether or not to share this but then i said fuck it no time like the present especially in light of recent events so i got a story to tell about serena williams 
Let me say first that Serena is the greatest female tennis player of all time, one of the most dominant athletes ever. She's top five and she's not five in that dominant category. She recently played at the U.S. Open in what is thought to be the last professional tournament of her enormous career. She beat the number two ranked player in the world and then lost in a three hour match in the third round of the Open, which was the longest match of her career. I am a Serena Stan, and a few years ago when I was a few weeks away from leaving ESPN altogether, I was asked to be in a Beats commercial with Serena Williams and Nicki Minaj. Now, I was hype as hell. It was as if the heavens opened up and God tapped me right on the shoulder. Won't he do it? This was going to be a major career accomplishment, a major career benchmark for me. I had a great plug at Beats who'd always looked out for me over the years. And he came up with this concept for ESPN's U.S. Open commercials. And he wanted me to be a part of it. These are the ads they run as they are heading into the U.S. Open during the U.S. Open just to get people hype, you know, drum up interest. And one ad who's going to have Serena on the streets of New York dressed like the queen she is. Another spot was her and Nicki Minaj together. And then what he wanted to incorporate was me facilitating a conversation between Nikki and Serena about female empowerment, self-worth, being the best at what they do. It was supposed to be inspirational and inspiring. There was a few snags, none of which had to do with me, Serena, or Nikki, but with ESPN. I needed approvals on approvals on approvals. Everybody didn't love the concept. And if I'm being honest, I think what they didn't love was that I was a part of it. Real talk. This opportunity was thrown at me two or three days before they were actually going to start shooting these ads. So I didn't have time to sit around and read email debates about it. It was typical corporate getting in the fucking way of my greatness. I rode to New York City anyway to do my part. And I told my beast plug, I'll just proceed as normal until I get told not to. Fuck all that corporate bullshit ass bullshit. I get to New York and I'm told that I'll be hanging out with Serena and Nikki and we'll be filming this video of our conversation in Serena's trailer and it'll be a relatively close set because they didn't want a bunch of people all in our conversation be organic be natural be yourself those are my directives shit you ain't gonna threaten me with a good time so I'm waiting in Serena's trailer she's nice but I'm awkward as a sports journalist I don't necessarily want to be fans of the people I have to interview and interact with that doesn't mean I don't respect them that doesn't mean I don't admire their accomplishments but there's got to be some distance in order for me to objectively write about them and cover them. But I was a big fucking Serena stan, and that was just the truth. Nikki was doing her Apple radio show, so for a time, it was just me and Serena, maybe two other people alone in this trailer. And I was trying hard not to be lame, making some small talk, but not too much. I'm having an inner monologue with myself in this moment, telling myself to try not to look like I'm screaming internally. It was difficult. Finally, Nikki arrives and maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, she comes walking into the trailer, smoking some weed. And she then offers some to me and Serena. Well, Serena first, then me. And I could have died right there first. And I'm going to keep it motherfucking 1000. If Serena said yes to the weed, I'm saying yes to the weed. Period. Point blank. I've smoked before. I don't smoke generally because I'm a terrible weed smoker. The shit gets all in my chest and I just feel like I'm about to die. But for that moment, I just would have had to risk it, y'all. Sometimes you have to rise to the occasion and boss up. And had the three of us actually smoke weed, I would have taken that shit to the grave. 
I conduct the conversation and it's great. Both women are thoughtful, open. The Beats execs are really, really happy. Me and Serena and Nikki, we take pictures, we keep keying, all good vibes, all good stuff. I was just elated to be in the room. What a time. Unfortunately, everything that was done never saw the light of day. Not one single recorded piece of it. I can't even post the pictures of the three of us from that day in the trailer. ESPN decided not to approve me doing the ad for reasons that didn't make any sense. And without their permission, Nikki and Serena's people wanted to protect their clients. So they said I couldn't even post any of the video on social or anything else. I get it. That's what they're supposed to do. But I'll never forget that day. And thankfully, that is not my only story related to the Williams family. One day, I got to tell y'all about the first time I ever swag surf because it was with the Williams family. All right, let's get back to more of my interview with Gina Prince Bywood. So, Gina, let's dive a little bit into your origin story. You were at first rejected from film school at UCLA. You petitioned and got yourself back in. And I'm sure young people come up to you all the time and ask you about how they can break in the film, how they can get their foot in the door. And I'm wondering, when you look at what the process is now to get into filmmaking versus what it was like when you were trying to make your way, what are some of the major differences that you see? I think the major difference is the accessibility of cameras, of ways to shoot a film, to shoot a short film, which will always be your calling card, to get that practice of shooting. Back then, I didn't have access to a camera, and the cameras were like this big, you know. So I didn't get that practice till I got into film school. Film school, though, was a safe place to fail. The more you do, the more you learn, you try, you find your voice. I think um, young people today can do that on your iPhone or on, you know, you can rent things way cheaper um, than what I had it. So, and then all the editing software that people can get right on your Mac, be able to do it and make films. So when people come up to me, film school, I, I, if you can go to film school, absolutely do. I fully believe in it. Not everyone can afford that. So if you can't afford it, then shoot, write and shoot, write and shoot. And um, it, it's all right there. Bring your friends in. Um, there's going to be some gem amongst your, your, your friend group that can do a little acting. But do it because the more you do it, the better you get, the better it is to know if this is truly what you want to do. If you are going out and hustling like that, then it's what you're destined to do. If you're sitting back and saying, I don't have any way to do this, then it's not for you. Uh, you um, have talked about before about how the internship you had with the Television Academy Foundation really changed the course of your career because what the first show you got on was a different world, correct? Actually, the, the internship came right before a different world. I didn't get the job in a different world because I was awful and unprepared in the interview. And at that point, I had just graduated, didn't know, I was thinking of going back to school at that point, and this internship came about, and I was able to get that and worked at Quincy Jones Entertainment. That did change my life for two reasons. One, having a job, I was able to stay in contact with Susan Fells Hill, who was running A Different World, and the fact that I was on a competing show, it just showed her something, and I just would stay in touch and, and talk to her about um, the things that I was doing. The second really important thing was that one of the assistants of one of the execs literally 
came to my desk, my little corner desk, and just dumped all her shit work on my desk. It was like, this is what you're going to be doing. And that in my mind, I thought I was going to be sitting in meetings and eating execs and reading scripts. And, and she just walked away. And I went home, I remember, and was so upset about it. And then it was like, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to just do this shit work? Or am I going to do what I, I came here to do? And that next day I came back, picked up stuff off my desk, put it back onto her desk, and then went to the three people, the person who ran the film department, uh, person who ran TV department, and person who ran legal, and said, I want to meet with you, talk with you about what I want to do. And that led to me actually writing a script for them. But it was that belief in myself, the arrogance of youth, maybe that, nah, I, I, yes, you're older and you're in the industry and I'm not, but I'm not doing that. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to be a filmmaker and I'm here to learn. Yeah, I've never forgotten that and proud of myself for, for handling it the way I did because I, I feel like things could have been way different if I hadn't done that. Yeah, that was a pretty gutsy move. So if you had a a young person who was working with you and did something similar, you would respond the way they responded with you. <laughs> or you'd be like, the nerve of this damn <laughs> <laughs> this damn intern. <laughs> I do I do think about that. Like how how I would react. In the same way I think about Susan Fails, where I literally called her every other day. Cause I read somewhere that that's how somebody got a job once. If somebody did that with me, would I pick up? Would I I don't know. Let me go back to something you said, because I do think it's important that, you know, young people, really anybody learn from these moments. But you said when you first went on that different world interview, you were unprepared and it was bad. What made it those things for that interview? What did you do? OK, I'm an introvert. I'm shy. So it's difficult for me in group situations. I had just graduated film school, which is a bubble. Absolutely. Like you're a star in film school, but you step out of that and nobody knows you. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do in that meeting. So I came with a couple vague ideas. I didn't understand when you have a meeting like that for to be a writer on the TV show, you need to come in with like more ideas than they know what to do with. You should be pitching, 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 show that you know the show, show that you know the characters. What are you going to bring? What are you going to add to that writer's room? What is your voice? that's not represented yet. What can you bring? But I walked in the room. I thought I was just meeting Susan Fales, who was my hero. She was 29 years old, running a, a top show, black woman. And I walk in and it's the entire writing staff, all the producers. So right then I freaked out. Um, Yvette Lee Bowser is the one that, that, you know, got me in the door for this interview. And I remember she was in the corner of my eye and as the interview was clearly going south and different writers started getting up and leaving. And in my head, I'm like, is this going as bad as I think it is? And I look over and see her face. I was like, oh, yeah, it's going, it's going really bad. And it was just, yeah, I was just, they were asking me questions and I was, I wasn't responding. It was just monosyllabic answers. And I just choked. It was a choke. And I left that, clearly didn't get the job so upset at myself, but it was, again, how do I fix this? In the same way, when I didn't get into film school, got rejected and, and wrote a letter to the head of the film school to say why she made a mistake. Like that overcoming no, having that lesson from film school absolutely influenced everything that came after that. And so not getting the job, 
okay, let me, let me just stay in Susan's orbit in her mind. And I was strangely blessed by the person that they did hire, did not take the job seriously. And he spent more time just trying to hang out with the actors, hang out at craft. And they realized they needed somebody else. And because I had stayed in Susan's mind, it was a call, hey, let's give her a shot and got to come in. And at that point, once I got in the door, I knew I need to outwork everybody here. And it was all nighters with Yvette Lee Bowser and working as hard as I could and writing scenes from scripts and trying to make myself invaluable. Yvette Lee Bowser, who, of course, created Living Single uh, and is a dynamo when it comes to both film and television. How does an introvert wind up in something as showy as the film industry? (laughs) Yeah, you know what it is? Because when I write, when I direct, and certainly in high school when I was writing, it gives you such power. I get to write my ending. I get to write how characters behave, how they talk, how they act, how they react. There's such a power in that. And that's something I can do by myself in my room. And then I can let my work speak for myself. So I know I can't go in and blow a room away, but can I work so hard on the script and hand that script to you and you see my talent there? And that has been an absolute benefit. I mean, if you see me at a party and we've seen each other at parties and I can talk to you for a little bit and you're mad cool. But then if you look a half hour later, I'm the one in the corner with my drink. <laughs> like, okay, I'm starting to shut down uh, because it's too much stimulation. The writing process, what is that like for you? Because in other interviews, and as a writer, I can certainly relate that it is kind of long and it sounds like a little bit torturous. I love how a friend of mine put it one time about writing. He, uh, My friend, Michael Smith, who I co-hosted Sports Center with, as he said, I like having written. Meaning when it's over with, right? Because it's true. Like when it's done, you're like, woo. But in the process, it can take you through a lot. So what does that process look like for you? Yeah, writing is really hard. And I write to direct. Like I love directing. Writing, I only love at the end. It is lonely. It is self-sabotage. It is low self-esteem it is you suck it's just like literally forcing myself into that chair every day even though i only write what i'm passionate about that's what gets me back in the chair it's a story i cannot get out of my head and so for me it's about making the characters real and once i can finally get to that point where they literally will start talking to me and then that talk comes in my fingers and then it's showing up on my screen but it takes a while to get there. And that's sitting in this chair actually right here and having a notebook with me and just thinking probably for a good month. I just think, 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 and just write things down the line of dialogue or a character trait or a story point. And then it goes into, once I've got that, then I start doing just this extensive character work pages to make them real. Like what, what was their childhood like? What's their hobby? What's their mantra? What's their sex life? What's their religion? Like all of that. What do they look like? So just getting all that deep dive so that, again, that they're real. I just have to make it real. And then I do the structure. And that's the hardest for me. And 
Uh, I'm not going to lie. I literally have to read scripts I've written before to remind myself that I don't suck and that I do know how to do this. But every time it's never easy and it's really hard. And I get stuck a lot in terms of writer's block, but I have learned over the years that you cannot stop. And I call it a bullshit draft. And it's literally, I can never go back and rewrite. I have to keep moving forward, keep moving forward until I finally get it all down. And it's going to be terrible. It's never what it was in your head. So that's why people, a lot of people have trouble writing and just go back and rewrite because it's scary to finish and see something you just spent for me, like literally a year, year and a half of something that sucks. But once it's down, then you start making it better. And that's when it starts to get better because you're asking what if, what if, what if all the time? What if the character does this? What if they say this? And then you start to see a shape and it starts to get closer and closer to what was in your head. But also I pull so much from my personal life and put it on the page. And that's what makes it difficult. Also that self-reflection. And and then also I gain weight when, <laughs> when I write because it's depressing. And so I just have a jar of junior mints on my desk. And anytime I want to reward myself, <laughs> you know, I give myself a couple of junior mints. Uh, you're like, ah, oh, that was a great phrase. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, get a, we get a junior mint, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I, as I was going through writing my memoir, I remember um, another writer, she told me, because you know, she had written one and she was just like, oh, your first draft shitty. I was like, oh, I feel so good to hear that because... I'm reading this and I was like, what kind of monstrous <laughs> dog shit is this? <laughs> like, what am I? But I just kept going, you know, and I had like 400 pages and I whittled it down and, you know, it was a, it was a whole thing, especially since it wasn't the book I actually thought I would write first. I didn't want to write about myself, but that wound up being the case. So, you know, I, I, I suffered through it. And so I'm, I'm glad I'm in the stage where it's done. I'm <laughs> like very happy about this. And now I can live a, a more, a less mentally draining existence, but you brought up uh, your childhood and, you know, you were adopted early three months, I believe. Yeah. You were raised by uh, a white family, white neighborhood, pretty white high school, white surroundings. How does the way you grew up and what you experienced, how does that inform your filmmaking? Where does it show up? A lot of anger. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll correct one thing. My my mom is Salvadorian and father is white. So it was, you know, very eclectic household. But yeah, a lot of anger going, being in an environment like that. And it's, you know, I've had conversations with my parents and, you know, in reflection and, you know, if they could do things differently, they would have, you know, been in different environments. But yeah, the things that I had to go through without any protection was really, really tough and really fuck with my self-esteem. Um, I didn't see myself reflected anywhere, not in my own home, not on TV, not in any of the environments. Sports absolutely saved me. This was the only thing that made me feel good about myself, gave me the applause that, you know, I just wasn't getting anywhere. I was really, really good at everything, every sport I tried. And it gave me something to do, but certainly what drives me in the beginning and probably still does was a desire to throw a middle finger at all of them who made me feel less than 
So maybe it's not healthy, but you know, it drives me. Well, you know, the, the old adage is that the thing that drives you is also the thing you're tormented by. <laughs> so I, I firmly believe that, you know, like the whole, your best trait is your worst trait. Mm. Yeah. That's the way the, the universe kind of works. So what's the topic subject matter? I don't know what the proper category would be, but that you'd most like to cover in a film that you haven't quite figured out a way to write or capture? I mean, the thing that I'm always chasing, I think the best example, one of my favorite songs is Lauren Hill's X Factor. I want to write something that makes an audience feel the way that song makes me feel. And so I feel like that's what I'm always chasing. Well, how does that song make you feel? I, I honestly, I can't fully articulate it. It, wrecks me it just makes me feel with such a depth of emotion and i've listened to it literally three thousand times i mean writing love and basketball the whole third act it was that was x factor on repeat like i wanted to be filled with those emotions as i'm writing so it's just i just want people to feel with that depth of emotion what that song evokes and so, yeah, I feel like I'm always chasing that in my work. Can I make people feel with that level of depth? Would you do another basketball movie? You know, I, I will never say never. There's just so many stories I want to tell. I want to put us in every genre. That's literally my goal, to, to have us and just disrupt genres. Love and Basketball was a personal story and a story that I, I needed to tell. In the same way as Secret Life of Bees or Beyond the Lights, there was something specific that I, I had to tell. And so I feel like I told that aspect of my life and that story. So I can't see myself writing something. If some amazing project came, I wouldn't shy away from it, certainly. Like my husband's show Swagger on Apple. Like I love that show. Yeah, it's a good show. Yeah. So to, you know, to be on the sidelines. And, and watch that. Like, that's what I love about sports films and sports programs. But, um, you know, I've been asked numerous times about a sequel and it's hella flattering. It really is after all this time, but I would never do that. It's like, what are, what's supposed to happen? Q and Monica is supposed to be, you know, flirting with divorce. And then you're just like, I don't, like, the ideas that get thrown at me. It's like, do we really want, really want to see that? Nah, nah. <laughs> Well, maybe not a sequel because we have seen this, but a series, television series. When they were younger, not like when they, you know. It's been pitched also. <laughs> I just. <laughs> You're like, I've heard it all. <laughs> so, yeah, it goes back to I told the story I wanted to tell. And I'm satisfied, satiated with that. Uh, you said in an interview that in Hollywood, decision makers, they put. Think like a man and 12 years a slave in the same category. They're like, they're a black film. It's like, um, sorry, no. Uh, that any black, any film that has a black person in it is automatically designated a black film. Have you seen that changed at all? It hasn't changed in that. That is how they categorize it as a genre. Black film is a genre as opposed to, yeah, Nope is sci-fi. Woman King is historical epic. You know, Black Panther is... is Marvel, they're all different genres, but they will absolutely Hollywood will see those all as, as black films. And the thing is, I have like I make films for us. I make black films. We got black folk in them. I have no issue with that. 
my issue is that Hollywood then says we've made our one black film of the year and that's it. And they use it as a crutch to not make more. Um, as opposed to, oh, I'm going to make this love story and it has black characters in it. And I'm also going to make this love story and it's got Latino characters in it and white characters. No, we get one film from a studio, essentially, and not all studios. That hasn't changed. It is Every time I look up and say, damn, look at this variety that we're getting, certainly in, in this year, the more of us that get this opportunity to make films. But then when you look at the actual numbers, it stays depressing. And so it is always going to be a fight, certainly with those of us who are in, but also those of us who are in holding that door open to pull others through it because it's not cute in 2022 to still be the only one in a room. And I know all of us feel that way. So Hollywood has a long, long way to go. What does it mean that, and I don't know if it's just my interpretation from afar or observation from afar, but I look at you and Old Guard, which was, you know, a nicely financed film. You know, obviously Cougar getting that Disney cash, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> got Black Panther 2 coming out. And of course, what he got for the first one, you know, Ava DuVernay getting the, the money she got for Wrinkle in Time in terms of the budget. It seems like there is more of us that are getting those bigger budget films, but I don't want to take an outlier and make that the, the industry standard. So how much of a struggle is that still to get Hollywood to properly finance black films? It is still hard. The fact that what you just said, you could count that on one hand, you know, and hundreds of films are made every year. So we have to prove ourselves every single time that, that there's a viable audience for our films. The fact that it took so long for Black Panther to get made, we all knew if you put something like that out, we're going to come. It made a billion dollars, but it took Hollywood this long to have that come out. Every time we have to prove that someone will come and watch us. And that, that can get disheartening. Absolutely. I truly believe it's a miracle that the woman King is about to be in the world, you know, a, a, a film like this. And I credit Black Panther absolutely for, for changing culture and proving something that needed to be proven. Jordan Peele and the work that he's doing and that people show up and he's making interesting things like these incremental movements that, that then allow a movie like the woman King and until it's truly out in the world, <laughs> I will still, I mean, again, it's a miracle, but something I'm super proud of. Well, how much do you think about the stakes when it comes to the woman King? I mean, the, the really hard part is, is done is since you've made the movie, it is, you know, as a taping of this podcast, it will soon be out for folks. But how much do you think about what's at stake? Because like you just said, even though you're a very proven filmmaker with a very successful track record, as a Black woman, they're constantly making you start from scratch in terms of proving that you can pull off these kinds of movies. I approach everything as I'm the first audience and I, I make what I want to see. And I've certainly done that with this film. The cast that came together to tell the story is such an extraordinary group of women, Black women. And we felt something special as we were doing it. There's, of course, enormous pressure for this to do well and prove ourselves. I have to say, it's been a beautiful experience to go through the preview process and now 
the film being shown to Longley Press and like bringing people into it and the reaction everyone is having, certainly starting with Black women and then women, then white guys that are connecting with these characters. That's what you want as a filmmaker. Any film I watch, I'm connecting with the notebook characters. They don't look like me, but I'm connecting. Slumdog Millionaire, one of my favorite films. The cultural specificity of that is what made it so special to me. I'm hoping The Woman King is the same, that, that the cultural specificity is not something that should keep you away, but draw you in. But not only that, that you can see yourself in these characters. And so it's been a beautiful thing. And certainly me with two boys and a husband, you know, I want I wanted them to love this film and see themselves, even though the focus is Black women, it is us. And the fact that they've embraced it is everything to me. And, and that's what I want for this film is everyone to embrace, see us in this way that we haven't been seen before and take that in and want more. Before we get to what I always consider to be the most controversial part of the interview, um, some quick fun questions that I have for you. I want to lastly ask you about something that Matt Damon said. This video went viral for some reason. Uh, it was an interview he did last year uh, where he talked about movies like Beyond the Lights. He didn't mention Beyond the Lights in particular, but he was talking about a movie that he did behind the candelabra, uh, which is about the last 10 years of Liberace's life. So what happened was the DVD was a huge part of our business, of our revenue stream. And Technology has just made that uh, obsolete. And so the movies that, that we used to make, you could afford to not make all of your money when it played in the theater because you knew you had the DVD coming behind the release. And six months later, you'd get all, you know, a whole nother chunk. It would be like reopening the movie almost. And when that went away, that changed the type of movies that we could make. He doesn't think those kind of movies get made anymore because there's no second life through DVDs. And so studios just aren't going to put big money or maybe any money behind certain new aunts projects. Have you found that to be the case um, or do you see that in the landscape? No, it's, it's true. Studios, because theatrical is so up in the air right now, because streamers have killed DVD there are way less chances being made on things that aren't um, established IP. Um, the old guard in when we were deciding whether to go after theatrical or streamer, I was all about theatrical. The amount of money that Netflix gave us as compared to the one studio who thought there was some value in that, that film, given it was two female leads, was staggering. I couldn't say no, even though initially I didn't, I had no idea what was I going to feel like to do a movie on Netflix? What is that? Like, am I going to be able to feel it, touch it? And then having had a movie now on Netflix and the global reach of it, yeah, I get it. <laughs> but it is very, very hard to get movies made now that aren't established IP, not a sequel, um, not tied to a comic book or a best-selling novel. Original stories are really hard to get made now. And that is, that is really disheartening, but I hope everything is cyclical and I hope that it can come back. All right. Now onto the controversial part of the interview, Gina. This is where all the headlines get made. It's a game that I play with every guest who appears on the podcast. The game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this 
very simple. You get two choices, and you have to pick one. Better action movie, The Raid or Mission Impossible 6? And by the way, shout out to you because I do my research when I come up with these. People sleep on The Raid. Yep. The Raid was like phenomenal. The Raid and The Raid too. If you want to put it in the genre of kung fu, that's the best kung fu movie I've, I've, I've seen. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with The Raid because it doesn't get the love it deserves. It's, it's incredibly dope. Like if you're listening, go watch The Raid. Uh, did you watch uh, The Raid too? Yeah, I watched both. And yeah, that a sequel be that good. Those, yeah, those movies are dope. Yeah. Yeah. The, the action sequences are ridiculous in, 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 in both of those movies. Yeah, it's relentless. That's what I love about it. It's relentless and creative and visceral. And it's such a simple premise. You got to get to the top of this building, you know, and to do that, you got to go to every floor and every floor there's danger and death. But it works because they had a little emotional core at the heart of it. All right. Tapping into your love of Nina Simone, uh, Blackbird or Don't Let Me Be Understood. Blackbird. I know that has a special meaning. Yeah, for you. But it's such a, it's a brilliant song. It's a brilliant song. And it's it's like it's soul crushing and heartbreaking. Uh, Marilyn Monroe's biography or Judy Garland's? Marilyn. It pisses me off that Hollywood has made literally a thousand movies about Marilyn Monroe. Like how many more times can you tell the story? But her story is so fascinating in how much she was failed from birth to her death. Yeah, it is a fascinating tale and heartbreaking. And finally, living single or girlfriends? Okay, no. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> See, I know you're close to both of the ladies that <laughs> were behind the show. I love all my children. How about that? <laughs> Is that what you're going to leave us with? Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. Hell yes. <laughs> both are incredible rewatches, by the way. And I was so happy when uh, they brought girlfriends to Netflix. Um, Because it's just a great rewatch, especially now that I'm a little older and I understand some of the situations a little differently. And same with Living Single. I'm like, I get it now. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, Gina, thanks for playing along. You avoided the, the big controversy because I couldn't wait for that headline of <laughs> Gina Prince Bythewood says X is better than X. <laughs> I couldn't wait. But uh, no, I won't do that to you. But no, I, I cannot... Um, I mean, the two movies I was looking forward to the most in, in 2022 were Woman King and Black Panther 2. So I cannot wait to get my black people in action on. So thank you for this film. I'm thanking you preemptively. I haven't seen it, but I know I'll see it very soon. So thank you for that. And I look forward to seeing all the other stuff that you have coming up on the docket. No doubt. Thank you for having me. All right. Gina's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Kanye West has a hissy fit on Instagram targeting people who actually haven't wronged him because he's got a fucked up, inflated idea of his own superiority. I could say that every six months as it relates to Kanye. 
And fucking I'm bothered because Kanye is forever trying to position himself as a revolutionary when in fact he's just a clown. Kanye's latest beef is with Adidas. And for the moment, thank God there's a pause on that Kramer versus Kramer shit going down with him and Kim Kardashian. Because nobody asked to be caught up in the dysfunctional Kardashian family group chat. None of us asked for that. Kanye is taking on Adidas on Beyonce's internet because he claims they stole his Yeezy design and used it to create these other slides, which do look very Yeezy-ish. Only with Kanye, there's always some fine print to mask his bullshit. Not mentioned is the fact that Kanye doesn't design Yeezys at all. Adidas does. It's Adidas's design. Kanye did not come up with that. In the name of O.J. Simpson, how you gonna accuse somebody of stealing their own shit? I really hope y'all got that. Since August, Kanye has been coming at Adidas, claiming he didn't approve them having Yeezy Day, using his enormous platform to target specific Adidas executives. Just bozo behavior. He's enlisted the help of his celebrity friends, which includes Swiss Beats and Puffy, to voice their support of him and encourage their fans to boycott Adidas. Again, acting as if Kanye is a political prisoner rather than a spoiled, entitled, rich celebrity who went from being this Kanye. George Bush doesn't care about black people. To this Kanye. When you hear about slavery for 400 years, for 400 years, that sounds like a choice. Kanye West propped up Candace Owens, calling her a, quote, free thinker, supported Donald Trump, wore a Make America Great Again hat, ran for president, causing an enormous distraction and siphoning votes during an election when for the 900th time in a row, black people's lives were on the lines. And here he comes with this whack ass presidential campaign. He fashions himself as some kind of elite critical thinker and yet openly admits he doesn't read books. This the same dude who wrote in a since deleted Instagram post. They teach black kids Kwanzaa at Sierra Canyon. What the fuck is Kwanzaa and who that bullshit up? Everyone lives in L.A. for the check anyway, so no one really cares about their children being indoctrinated. Over and over, black folks tried to talk some sense into Kanye because that's what we do. Forgive those who cause us untold damage. But Kanye largely ignored the pleas for him to do and be better. So now I'm giving Kanye that same energy he was giving black people when he was shuffling in front of Trump at the White House. I'm going to not give a fuck about his situation the same way he hasn't given a fuck about ours. Besides, don't come running to us to fight your fight, especially when, based off what I've read thus far, the real reason you're throwing this tantrum is you simply want out of your contract, likely because you have a bigger payday in mind. And if Adidas already made you a billionaire, allegedly, then there's more where that came from. Kanye West does not care about black people. Kanye West cares about Kanye West. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. 
Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.